and welcome to episode 36 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, today we have our second round of question and answers for the week because in response to listener requests, we are going to be releasing these episodes more frequently. So we're aiming for two podcast episodes per week. So we're going to jump straight into it and start answering some questions. So the first question is, why do I have so much flatulence towards the end of prep? Not normally gassy at all. And the question asker has kept all foods the same and has cut out all sugar-free products and it's still quite bad. Man, all right, so the answer to this question is going to be a little bit tricky because we, of course, we're just going to have to speculate and probably give a theory, but we do wanna let you know that this is probably quite common and it is something that a lot of competitors probably will experience, so you're certainly not alone. But because you mentioned that, you know, you've cut out sugar-free products and you haven't changed your foods at all, what I can really speculate is that perhaps, you know, because you are at the end of a prep and you are eating less food than you were at the beginning of your prep, as we know, sometimes gut motility just slows down in prep and people don't go to the bathroom as often. So potentially what could be happening is that due to not having as frequent of bowel movements, food is just sitting in your intestines for longer. And the longer the food sits in your intestines, you know, the more time bacteria has to ferment it and a byproduct of that is gas. So potentially that could be leading to extra gas and extra farts. <laughs> and I think something else we also have to consider is that changes in the guts is not always acute. So it's not always a direct cause and effect. Like you eat something and then an hour later you have flatulence. Because you have been in comp prep for a, a significant amount of time now, the changes are gonna be more chronic. So, and not necessarily in a bad way, just that you're, you're eating less food and you're differing your food choices compared to when you were in an off season. So therefore the changes will be long, more long-term, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And another thing I actually just thought of was because, you know, of course you're in a competition prep and your food has progressively been getting lower. In response to that, you know, your body wants to try to utilize as many calories as possible that you're giving it. So again, this is pure speculation. I don't know if this is actually happening, but a potential theory is that perhaps you've had a slight change in your microbiome and the diversity of microbes in there and how they ferment different fibers and how they ferment, you know, different food products in order to become more efficient and extract more energy from them. So perhaps, you know, with the change in those bacteria, they're basically what they're trying to achieve is that when that food gets to your colon, originally you would have had a different strain of bacteria and it would have been fermenting that food in a different way and then it would pass through and it wouldn't extract as much energy from it. So for example, it wouldn't create as many short chain fatty acids from those extra food waste products and then put those into the bloodstream. But now because your body is quite significantly deprived of energy, it's trying to derive as much possible energy from those waste products as possible. 
And this actually is quite relevant to obesity research. And what they actually see in obese populations is that they do have a different type of microbiome and a different strains of microbes in there. And they do have the potential to ferment food and waste products in different ways to extract more energy from that. So it might just be a smart response by your body to try to just get as many possible calories as it can because at this point in time, they're quite scarce. But again, that is a complete theory. We don't actually know. And that could potentially be leading to extra gas because you're just having more waste products fermented. Yeah, that does make sense. And also, I think everyone that goes through prep increases their vegetable consumption and fruit consumption as well. And obviously, a reduction in more processed foods, an increase in fruit and vegetables, potentially a decrease in fattier sources of protein and meat as well, will correlate to a different microbiome composition as well, probably a more favorable one. But just that even that subtle change can also, um, again, more chronically and over time, not instantaneously, will change your, your gut habits, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good discussion on that topic. All right, so moving on to another question. This one was asked by Ria Hanna, and she asks, what would you tell your pre-comp self now after having competed? Any key advice? So first and foremost for me would be just to start in a better body composition. So I was probably around like 16 to 18% body fat, and I just went straight into the, like the long dieting phase of 20 weeks, and I really should have started probably at like closer to 12 to 13% body fat, ideally. And that would have really, I think, been a better decision for me in terms of reducing the amount of weight I had to lose. Yeah, and because I don't remember, you didn't do a mini cut before that prep, did you? No. Yeah, I was still... Yeah, this was at the end of 2017. And yeah, I my diet... I've, we talked about this in previous episodes, but like I had a very high fat diet, which essentially just made me store more body fat. Um, but yeah, that would be the number one for me. The number two would have just been probably just to make the most of the competition period itself and maybe even prolonged it and gone down to nationals instead of just doing the rookies and the state show and also making the most of the prep itself as well. We should, like, Tierra and I both wish that we'd done more photo shoots together. Like, we always post the same photo of the comp because we literally don't have any other photos together. God damn it. I feel like, <laughs> oh, just so much was going on at that time tied in with our master's degree and, you know, prep brain, your low energy. And, man, we just should have hit up Nelson earlier and done a shoot. Mm. Next time, next time. Yep. So what about you, Tiara? Ah, if I had to think of one thing, it would certainly just have been to give myself more time because like a lot of first-time competitors, you kind of underestimate the amount of time that it's going to take to get comp lean. And I started my comp prep 15 weeks out from my first show. And to be honest, I, I know that I looked a hell of a lot better at my second show, which was 17 weeks out, which is probably the perfect amount of time for me didn't like for that prep specifically but yeah it just really reinforces that give yourself enough time because there were a lot of factors that contributed to you know having to go to lower calories than I would have liked during my last comp prep you know just tied in with our master's degree schedule I wasn't moving as much as I 
usually would. Like during the days I had to be quite sedentary just because of the kind of uni work that we were doing, which was really unfortunate. I tried to go on as many walks as I could, but like my steps were way down compared to what they'd normally be. My sleep schedule was whack and yeah, just, uh, just highly stressed. So my calories had to drop quite lower than like I would have liked. And I probably had to push a lot harder towards the end than I would have liked. And that's really just one of the main reasons why my next comp prep starting in nine days from now, I'm giving myself 25 weeks of prep until my very first show. And that's because I just want to have enough time and I want to be ready early and I don't want to have to, you know, reduce my calories any lower than they need to be. I want to be able to give myself more refeed weeks and diet breaks and I want to give myself more high days and low days and just have a more enjoyable prep and yeah, that's one of the main things. Like, don't underestimate how many weeks it actually takes to get comp lean. Give yourself substantial time. So that's why Jack and I always recommend, you know, somewhere, depending on your starting body composition, at least 20 weeks, but we usually recommend closer to 25 weeks because, you know, it, it there's no harm in getting ready a few weeks early. It's really going to pay off and you're actually just going to have a much better physique on the show day. Yeah, completely agree. And we'd even recommend a mini cut before starting as well. So just to put yourself into an even better position. Yeah, because what was your starting body weight and how much did you actually have to lose during your prep? So my starting was around 88 to 89 kilos and I lost, I went down to 74 kilos was my lowest. So a solid like 14, 15 kilos. Yeah, exactly. And if you think, if you would have done a mini cut, do you, what weight do you think you would have liked to have started your prep at? Probably closer to 85. Yeah, that probably would have been. Yeah, but you, you know, you live and you learn and that's the whole beauty of this, right? Mm. Okay, so moving on to another question. So this one's by Merles and she asks, what are the top exercises to grow the front delts? So this is a really good question and it's actually interesting because I remember listening to a Revive Stronger podcast. Geez, maybe they even posted it a few years ago. I don't know, but they had Mike Isertel on the show and he was talking about this topic specifically and growing your front delts. And he made a really good point that basically the front delts are hit in every single pushing movement. So any type of bench press or incline press, shoulder press, you're always going to be recruiting fibers in your front deltoids. So there isn't really a necessity to do an isolation movement like front raises or anything for your front delts. I don't know many people, if anyone who like, as long as they're doing pushing movements that they have underdeveloped front delts. So I don't think it's super necessary to actually add in isolation exercises for those, like, you know, front raises or anything like that. What what do you think, Jack? Yeah, I completely agree. And definitely like barbell press, any incline presses, shoulder presses. I found that for me, like a a high incline barbell press, basically a seated overhead press has worked wonders for my front delts. And I've never done a uh, front raise in my life and I've never prescribed any either. Yeah, I think it would kind of be trending in the area of junk volume, you know? Mm. Yeah, so I'd really focus on just trying to progress with your pushing movements and your front delts are gonna be hit secondarily just fine. They're gonna develop just fine. And with those movements, you're gonna get the most bang for your buck too. Yep, 100%. So 
So moving on to the next question, which is by Xander. He asks, going from minicut back to mass, go to maintenance cows or straight back to a conservative surplus? Hmm, what do you think? So what I would recommend is going straight back to a conservative surplus because the whole point of the mini cut was essentially to get in, get out and drop that weight as fast as possible and then get straight back into massing and gaining muscle. So if you go back to maintenance cows, then you will basically just be spinning your wheels and not really getting anywhere because you'll be maintaining that current body weight as opposed to being productive and putting on some size. Yeah, I guess it really depends on which phase someone's in because certainly, yeah, mini cuts are the most common to implement during a prolonged improvement season. So, you know, if you have like two years off from the stage after maybe six months of massing, you might put in a six to eight week mini cut kind of thing and then you would go back into massing. But sometimes people do do cuts in preparation for comp prep, like what I did about a month and a half ago. So I did a cut and I dropped just over four kilograms across eight weeks. And then my main goal there was to actually maintain my weight. So in that case, I took myself back up to maintenance calories and I've been maintaining that body weight ever since. Also while, you know, trying to put on a little bit more lean mass and really trying to push those maintenance calories as high as possible if I can, which I have been able to, woohoo, success. But yeah, it really depends on which phase you're in. So most commonly, yes, go back into a slight conservative surplus and really track your data accurately and keep pushing up from there. But you can take yourself back to maintenance if you wanted to hold that body weight, if you are planning to enter a comp prep, maybe anywhere between one to two months following that cut. Yeah, and... I personally, I think even if you are going into a comp prep, then it might even be a better idea to go into a very, very conservative surplus so you can try and start off the comp prep with high calories as well. Yeah. Which is what Tierra did anyway. Yeah, they're good. My my carbs are at 400 right now and man, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling strong and I'm bouncing around. I got so much glucose in my blood. <laughs> uh, life's good. All right, cool. So we'll move on to another question. So this one was asked by Nikias, and it says, daily steps, how many would be too many? For example, would they cut into recovery slash inhibit muscle growth? How many is too many? So I think it's definitely possible to go overkill on the steps and do too many per day, especially when it's combined with an active job such as a trade. So for example, it will also depend a lot on the individual and how good their recovery is and whether in a deficit or a surplus. But for example, I even in a deficit and in a comp prep, I wouldn't go above probably 15,000 steps a day. That would just be my recommendation. And because the goal at the end of the day, the goal is to build muscle and be able to prioritize recovery at the same time. And if you're offsetting both of those with lots of daily steps, then it's not going to be optimal and especially the performance side of things as well. So if you do around 12 to 15,000 steps right before your evening leg day, then it's really going to be doubtful of whether you're going to be able to hit all your previous numbers. Yeah, I completely agree. It really depends on what your occupation is. So if you're a construction worker, if you're a school teacher, if you work in a very large hospital and you're just walking around all day, it depends on what you're accustomed to. So I certainly would try to, you know, 
With your step target, try to slowly, incrementally increase it if it's below 10,000. And even if it's at 10,000, yeah, like Jack said, maybe anywhere between 10 to 15,000 is generally all right for most people. Just try to not go from like 5,000 steps per day all the way up to 15,000 steps per day in the space of a day or a few days because your body's not accustomed to that. It needs to get more used to it. And also it depends on what your training session is that day. And if you're doing daily steps on the same days that you're training, like Jack used the example of a leg day, are you doing 20,000 steps on a day where you're training legs or are you doing 20,000 steps on a day where you're training upper body or are you doing 20,000 steps on a technical rest day where you're not in the gym so that will really depend too it's hard to put an exact number on it it's really going to be individual but honestly the best thing you can do is track your data and note feedback too so track your daily steps and track your daily training sessions too and really see if there's a general trend and say, okay, you know, on days where I walk uh, over 15,000 steps and on those same days I train legs, my performance is not nearly as good. Uh, But you could also say, hey, on days where I walked 15,000 steps, but I trained upper body, my performance doesn't change at all. It's really going to be individual. So just track your data and just notice general trends there and feedback too and just how you're feeling as well like are you feeling super fatigued and also what time of the day are you doing these steps too are you doing going on massive walks right before your training sessions or are you going on walks during the early morning and then you've got a few hours before you train in the afternoon so damn there's so many factors that go into it Mm. you can't give a specific number yeah pretty much everything in this industry should be personalized anyway yeah But yeah, the main thing is, is just try to make sure that you have enough energy and you're psyched up and the majority of your energy is going into your resistance training sessions each day, not your daily steps if you are a physique athlete, because we have to think about the primary goal here. We're really trying to put everything into building our physiques, not moving our feet as many times as we can. So this next question is by Tanner and he asks, is VPA a good protein supplier? I'd never heard of them before. Ah, all right. So this is a great question. So for those who don't know, VPA is a phenomenal protein brand here in Australia and they actually support this podcast, which is super nice of them. They post our episodes up on their website and also in their weekly newsletters. So We really, really appreciate that. And Jack and I are both affiliated with VPA, which is amazing. We've been affiliated with them for quite a number of years now, and we've been customers of theirs for a huge number of years now. And they're just a phenomenal company. They have a huge range of products. Their quality is phenomenal. And unlike a lot of supplement brands, they're actually approved by Inform Sport and Hasta, which means that a lot of their products have been third-party tested for illegal substances. So they are safe for elite athletes to use and they are WADA approved, which is just awesome. So, And they're actually a sponsor of the Reds Rugby Union team too. But yeah, Jack and I have been using VPA for years. Fantastic company, especially here in Australia because it's so affordable because it's all online, but they certainly do not sacrifice quality. And also 
they have like the quickest delivery ever. Like if you order during the morning, it's either at your house on that same day or the next day. It's like a one to two day delivery. So they treat your gains with urgency and they really care. And yeah, if you guys want, you can always save 15% off VPA products. And we've got two discount codes. One is vpa.fit slash tiara. And the other one is vpa.fit slash jack. So we won't take any offense if you guys decide to use either one of those codes. We don't mind who you pick. <laughs> but yeah, uh, VPA, they're an awesome company. Yeah, they really have supported us so much. And one thing I have noticed is that they're constantly striving to improve their products as well, especially in regards to their flavor. They have some great people on the team from some other very big companies who have transitioned to VPA and are working on the, all the flavors. So I'm very excited for the future for them as well. And this also ties in very nicely with one of our other questions we received about our top supplements that we use. So all of our supplements we use are from VPA and we do use a few different ones each. So I'll let Tierra go first. Yeah, well, I guess we both use pretty damn similar supplements, nothing out of the ordinary, but you know, we both use protein powders. So WPI, WPC, casein protein powder too. They also have some awesome like protein mousse and protein hot chocolate. Creatine, we love their pre-workout, especially hot. What else? Uh, Tierra also uses their ZMA tablets. Oh yeah, so I take a ZMA tablet every night before bed, usually about half an hour before I fall asleep. And ZMA is just a combination of zinc, magnesium, and vitamin B6. And I find that that really helps with my quality of sleep. And Tierra also uses the beetroots from them. Oh, how could I forget the beets? I love beets. Oh my God. That's quite a reason. I only just started using those this year, but they have a very high nitrate content. And I did a little post on my Instagram page that you guys can go read if you like about the benefits of supplementing with nitrates. But yeah, they're really good. I love the beets. I've noticed a huge difference to my performance since taking them just with like my recovering heart rate and also my endurance during the session and especially just my energy levels and stamina during the end of a training session. It's really, really good. Beets are a vasodilator and they just have a lot of cardiovascular benefits, especially for athletes who train. So yeah, beets are awesome. You've got to get beat the beats. Can't beat the beats, dude. You got to get amongst the beats. <laughs> yes. Once I get some appetite back. <laughs> well, they're, they're basically just carbs, so they could add to your high carb intake. Mm. It's more about stomaching the beats. Yeah, they add stevia now, so it's a little bit sweeter. They didn't used to add sweet stevia in their very first product, so it was a little bit hard to down, but <laughs> luckily the beats are sweeter now. Sweet beets. And the final product that we both use, Tierra uses it a bit more than me, are the powdered egg whites. Holy crap. How did, I am so forgetful today. How did I forget that? I literally have their egg whites as an omelet every single morning with cheese and spices. Sometimes three times a day. Oh, I love them. They're so good. They're like the ultimate prep food as well because they're just pure protein and they are so voluminous. Yeah, I love their egg white powder. All right. So yeah, those are. Have you ever had real egg whites? Oh, yes. When we go to buffets and like when we go to fancy buffets, you know, and that the chef like makes an, an omelet in front of you. Jack and I always get egg white omelets with a bunch of vegetables. Which do you prefer? Uh, I probably 
like the VPA egg whites oh. the more. I'm not kidding. They're just more voluminous, and I really like the texture. Mm. They're good. Yeah, they and good, yeah. much, much cheaper than buying liquid egg whites, that's for sure. So one of our final questions is actually specific to someone, and he basically does a combination of gymnastics-style training each week, and he also does regular weightlifting as well. So he just wanted to know what would be the best way of splitting these two types of training up. So we aren't an expert in gymnastics, but I guess it just comes down to regulating your recovery and also energy as well. So personally, I wouldn't recommend doing gymnastics and weights in the same session. So depending on which one you want to prioritize and excel in more, because at the end of the day, it's very difficult to try and balance two different styles of training and excel in both at the same time. But there are some people who can do it. But if it was me, I would either do two workouts a day and prioritize the one that was more important with me or I would split up. So maybe train with weights four times a week and train gymnastics two times a week or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Gymnastics is incredibly taxing and it's resistance training in itself because you're just using your body as your own resistance, but also, you know, flipping around on rings and going on bars and all that stuff. Man, gymnasts have some of the best bodies in the world. They are amazing. I love watching the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games, like really just the gymnastics component. There's a lot of sports that I don't watch, but I love watching the gymnastics. Oh, they're so strong. They're just, oh, wow, amazing. But yeah, if you wanted to, I would probably wouldn't really incorporate both in the same workout, especially if you start with the gymnastics movement, then it will most likely take away from your the movements you're trying to progress in over time. And vice versa, if you start with the weightlifting, don't really know too much about gymnastics, but yeah, I, don't, I can't imagine that you'd be able to prioritize your form and technique and it might even be a bit more dangerous if you're already quite pre-fatigued. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be very taxing, especially because doing gymnastics right before a training session, gymnastics training is very glycolytic. So you are going to use up a bit of your glycogen stores there. And yeah, just pre-fatigue yourself. So certainly try to split those training sessions apart. So this next question is by Lorday and she asks, differences between ICN versus IFBB versus WBFF? Man, all right, so this is a really good question and it's quite a loaded question because, you know, it really depends on which category you're competing in between these federations. And I guess we'll just point out first, what some people may not know is that in bodybuilding, there's two streams. There is an enhanced stream where people are allowed to take performance enhancing drugs. And then there's a natural stream where people are not allowed to take performance enhancing drugs. So that's the main difference between these three federations is that ICN, I compete natural, speaks for itself. You're not allowed to take performance enhancing drugs. But IFBB and WBFF, you are allowed to take these sorts of supplements. Really, I I don't actually look at it like that. I just see it as tested and untested because it's still, in some countries, it's still you're not allowed to use performance-enhancing drugs. It's against the law. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's against the law in the country, but not for the Federation. Well, they they just turn a blind eye to it. It's like... Well, I guess, you know, they have bigger fish to fry. Like, there's more important things going on in the world than people who are trying to get as big and as strong as possible and then, you know, get up on stage in some bodybuilding chunks and 
posed down. So yeah, anyway, in regards to the actual federation rules, some are allowed to take performance enhancing supplements and others aren't allowed to take performance enhancing supplements. So that's really going to dictate what people look like for starters, but also just between the different categories and between the posing styles as well, there's just so many differences for sure. Yeah, for example, for bodybuilding, uh, for ex- for starters, WBFF doesn't have a bodybuilding category. They have a muscle model. Mm. Yeah. It's very, very different. Um, uh, there is probably more similarity between IFBB and ICN, especially in regards to the styles of posing. But the reality is that the majority of ICN competitors just wouldn't be competitive um, on an IFBB stage. But of course, there are exceptions to the rule. Yeah, especially like people like Brandon and Damo. Yeah, I reckon they have a good shot at being competitive against some of those guys. Mm. But yeah, there's just, there are very large differences. But what I'd really recommend is just going to a show and, you know, look at the different categories and pick the one that stands the most out to you and one that you can really see yourself competing in and one that suits your physique. And then Following that, get in touch with a coach who's familiar with that federation, get in touch with a posing coach who can teach you how to pose for that federation, and so on. And yeah, and even feel free to test out different federations and see what you like the most. But there are certainly a lot of differences, and I don't think that we could go into detail on every single different category and the differences between every single one. Mm. Yeah, there's plenty of resources out there. Uh, on each of their designated websites as well. Yeah, exactly. But they are all phenomenal federations. They all are certainly up there in the top three as well. WNBF is another huge federation too. That's a World Natural Bodybuilding Federation. And Jack and I are really hoping that they make their way into Australia in the coming years because that would be epic to compete with them. They do have a female stream, which is affiliated with WNBF called AWNBS. But yeah, that should be exciting for future years. So we've just wrapped up our final question and it's going to be a bit of a shorter episode today because we're doing the two episodes a week now. So as per usual, we're going to finish off with something that we've learned this week and I'll let Tierra go first. Okay, something that I learned this week. All right, this is something that I've kind of always known, but it was just really, really reinforced to me yesterday is that I have a pet for when people say the word um and not just once or twice but like 10 times in one sentence and oh this has always really really bothered me and the reason why I'm saying this is because yesterday I wanted to listen to a podcast I'm not naming any names but I wanted to listen to a podcast on a topic which was I thought was really interesting and it was also spoken by people who I look up to in the health and fitness industry. And like one minute into this podcast, I just had to bail because every second word was the word um. It was just awful and it was so irritating and it was so distracting and ah, like think about if someone posted a video to Instagram, right? And it was like, they're trying to put out content and like, let's say that they were doing a 10 RM on squat, 
but every second rep, someone in the gym walked past the video. Like you just saw these legs go back and forth and it would just be so distracting from the video. Like sure, the content's still there and you can still kind of see the person doing their 10 reps on squats, but good analogy oh oh thank you very much but yeah it's so distracting so you also didn't say um once oh thank you very much um anyway no just kidding but yeah i guess this is just you know a small reminder for anyone out there who is producing content whether it be a podcast or a video or even a picture, you know, just think about how that is your work and you're really trying to deliver good quality work and good quality content. And if you need to edit it. So for example, Jack and I have done interviews with people before, or obviously we record these podcasts weekly and I always listen back and I always, you know, listen to the content and try to make it good quality content so that if we were interviewing someone and they said the word um a lot, I can easily cut that out when I'm editing the podcast because it makes a much better quality piece of work and quality piece of content for listeners to listen to. And it's not so distracting. And yeah, I guess that's what I kind of learned this week. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Jack, what did you learn this week? (laughs) So yesterday I learned that the Apple store really isn't that bad. And I've always put off going to the Apple store if I've had any troubles with my phone. But yesterday I just had a really great experience and I encourage anyone to go there if they have any troubles with their phone or computer. So yeah, essentially I went in there, my phone was playing up. I literally went in at 10.30 and was out before 10.40 with a completely brand new phone. So, and yeah, they literally just replaced it in under 10 minutes, so. Yeah, it's just amazing. Cause I think a lot of places like that, like you used to work at Optus, but any like tech store kind of thing, you always think that it's just going to be such a hassle taking something in there and it's gonna take ages and probably going to try to rip you off and tell you that it's not actually broken or it's all your fault. But yeah, that's so nice. Yeah, I think Apple's just at the success now where they can really just afford to keep their customers happy and just give away free iPhones (laughs) to an extent. (laughs) Throw them around like candy, man. One for everyone. (laughs) As long as it's under warranty. Yes, that's right. But yeah, you got a damn good deal. Yeah, my phone was just turning on and off at random times and just sat down with this tech dude and he played around with my phone and then he just handed me a new one. (laughs) Damn, honestly, and like I I went to the city with Jack and I was like, oh, while I'm here, I'll donate some blood because I thought it was going to be like 45 minutes to an hour and I hadn't even had a needle in my arm yet and Jack calls me, he's like, I'm all done. And I'm like, what the shit? That was 10 minutes. (laughs) He's like, I got a brand new phone. (laughs) Lucky guy. All right. Okay. So that's the end of this episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning into our 36th podcast episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you again in a few days. See you guys. Bye-bye.